Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. This is episode 155. And I'm Danielle Delamar. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining our conversation today. I'm talking to Corona Pritchard, human resources consultant and executive coach. Corona, how's it going? So good. So good to be here. Thank you so much, Danielle. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. And because I, your being here... Um, fulfills so many little strands of conversation that we have on the podcast from like career pivots to uh, career wellness to, you know, how to engage with colleagues at work and HR people at work. So there's so many things that, um, that are really relevant to my audience um, that you're bringing to the conversation. So thank you for being here. I'm available for all of that. Super excited. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) You tell me how this feels, but it feels like maybe we start with um, sort of your burnout story and how that led to a career pivot. How does that feel to you to to start talking? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to just kind of dive in and talk about how I got here. <laughs> what was the, the journey that I went on? Uh, I got my master's degree in social work when I was in my mid-20s and practiced clinically for um, six, seven years. I worked in really hard clinical environments, first with adults with serious mental illness and then with veterans struggling with homelessness and substance use disorders. And I ran big clinical teams. The last uh, clinical team I ran had 20 clinicians, uh, some peer support folks, and we served 500 veterans and their families every year. So it's just a massive operation. Mm -hmm. But a couple of things happened. One was I started to get fried a bit. Uh, I could tell because my patience for the work, my ability to think clearly about big decisions or um, crisis situations was starting to get away from me a bit. It was It was starting to feel more gray. Um, or foggy, perhaps is a word I could use. But what I realized was that what was really burning me out was not the clinical work. It was the lack of support I had as a leader. And it was the organizational dysfunction that made doing my job so hard and made me feel like I could work myself to the bone and it was never going to be quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give an example. Towards the end of my time uh, with 
the, the at the VA, and I should say there are amazing folks at the VA, and I, I don't want this to to in any way um, be a condemnation of the incredible work that that whole community does. This was just my experience, and one of the things that I was dealing with was that folks would show up my up at my door who needed housing. And I had to, along with with my clinicians, kind of make decisions about who we could support and who we couldn't support. And we only had so much funding and uh, vouchers for subsidies for housing. And we had requirements that were handed down to us by the regional leadership. But frankly, they were those guidelines were handed to the regional leadership by Congress. So this is a whole ecosystem, right? And what was happening at that point was essentially that I was being told that we were not housing enough single veterans from a particular era of uh, war era, from the Vietnam era, and that we were housing too many families with children. And so, you know, pause for like the WTF of that. Um, and, and the argument I kept trying to make was if you look at our specific context, we have plenty of options for a single veteran for temporary housing to hold them over. And regionally we have no options for families. Um, that's why they're living in cars. That's why they're finding themselves in these situations. Like we just, we don't have enough options for them. But long story short, I, I was still called out for this in a leadership meeting and in kind of a public way. And um, and I just went to my car and cried. Um, and I, I left that job six weeks later. Mm. Um, and through that whole discernment process, when I was thinking about what about the organization I wanted to fix? Like what would have made my work as a clinician in a high stress environment sustainable from a support perspective? I, I really came to a place of wanting to explore a career in human resources and organization development. And organization development is really about assessing and intervening in organizational issues and I went through the process of, of investigating what that could look like. I leaned heavily on my network um, and eventually was introduced to somebody who was opening a role in an organization development department in a hospital. So it was a nice crosswalk or a hospital system. It was a nice crosswalk because I, I had the environmental experience of, of working clinically. And then he his background was that he had a master's in counseling. And so he understood the crosswalk between mental health work and, uh, and organization development and human resources work. So I made a career change and I've been in that field for 10 years. Um, and I still believe my original hypothesis to be true that humans can manage and find resilience through tremendously stressful circumstances if they work in a healthy context. Mm. Okay. So one thing I have, I have a few questions, but one mm. thing that's um, 
striking me is that here you are, um, you, you go through this sort of crisis moment at work, you go to your car, you cry, Mm -hmm. you leave six weeks later. And, um, the way you sort of talk about it is, look, I figured out what I wanted to do, what it would look like. I networked and I eventually found, found what I needed. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are wanting to make a career pivot. Not everyone, but many. And um, the way you described it sounded very simple. Um, (laughs) I know it wasn't as simple as, as it, as it comes out as in, in a conversation like this. So I'm wondering what was the sort of hardest part in that journey out? even though you knew it was the right place to be and you're still feeling confirmed that you made the right decision, what was the hardest part and how did you sort of get yourself through it? Yeah, the, I mean, in many ways, the hardest part came when I actually made the switch. So you would have thought it would be the process of finding the right role or the avenue. And that did take, I mean, realistically, that whole arc was a year of kind of going through the discernment of what I wanted to do, really investing in the networking process, being willing and to lean on my network and ask for introductions, um, then having this role open with someone I had met through that process, uh, going through that process, right? Like all of that really took a year. And then I actually land in a human resources department in a hospital system. And what I realized was that so much of my identity was wrapped up in being a clinician Mm. or working in a certain context or being the person that managed a certain type of emergency. And that was no longer my role. Mm. And uh, I've used this analogy before, you know, I kind of showed up in like this very corporate context and I was probably like three days in and I was going to get my lunch out of the fridge in the communal area. And a woman was who also worked there was just making friendly chat with me and it just kept talking about how full the refrigerator was and why was it so full and what was going on in the office that it was so full. And I was like, Oh my God, (laughs) like, what are we talking about? Like I just left this context where all day I'm triaging crisis Mm. and we had a lot of death. We had a lot, I mean, true emergencies. And I'm like, I don't know that I can develop enthusiasm for the conversation about the fullness of the communal fridge. Um, And I had this feeling of like, I had been driving down the highway at 80 miles an hour and somebody pulled the emergency brake. That was how that felt to me, that context shift. Just so, so jolting. Yes. So jolting, so disorienting. Mm. And when you identify as somebody who drives 80 miles an hour, finding your footing in a different pace in a different context is actually really hard, even if it's what you want. Mm, Amen. I'm so glad you brought this up. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so I had to do some work of letting my identity of being someone who works in a certain way or solves a certain kind of problem. Like I, it took me a while to like fully let that go. And now what I've found is that I actually still, I came back around to still identifying as a social worker. I, if, if it was a title, I would call myself an organizational social worker where my client is the organization and my job is to support it, resource it, create an ecosystem where it's healthy. Um, but that job title doesn't exist. Maybe someday. Mm. Okay. So I love the idea of creating a healthy ecosystem. And um, I guess I'm wondering how does that look? What does mm-hmm. a healthy ecosystem mean to you? Well, ecosystems are always in flux, right? And I'm thinking about if you look at nature, mm-hmm. um, nature, an ecosystem, whether it's a forest or, you know, a freshwater pond and marsh area, they're always in flux. They're always going through changes and they're always seeking homeostasis. And I think we have to think about organizations in the same way that organizations are not stagnant in quote unquote institutions and the way that we think about them, they are ever changing, flowing, moving, and therefore creating human agility within them is the most important thing that we can do for long-term viability. And so I'll just, I'll give an example. I was recently uh, invited into an organization that is going through a lot of restructuring and changing because of very particular financial pressures. And they're having to think about reductions in force. So that's when you, you terminate, um, some employees or a section of employees because, uh, you know, because of budget cuts, generally speaking. And they were really grappling with how to, talk about this in the company? How are they going to roll out this change? How are they going to have dialogues with their teams about the why behind this, the purpose of it, where the organization is headed and retain people who we're going to stay in and help them to feel safe. And so there's models that I use for that. One's based in neuroscience called the, it's called the scarf models from the neuro leadership Institute. If folks are interested, they do incredible work. Um, And so really it's just helping people fully understand other humans so that you can lean in in a way that is effective and meet somebody where they are and helps them to be agile because you are appropriately resourcing them with knowledge, information, tools, uh, you know, communications, et cetera. Um, so that's just one tiny example of what this can look like. But I think the whole idea of considering an organization as an ecosystem constantly in flux is the most useful foundation for then thinking about how do we handle 
the human lives inside those organizations. Mm. Okay. So what's coming to mind for me is um, the need and the importance um, of psychological flexibility, right? Like Mm. you're, you're sort of allowing people to be as they are to think in ways that are perhaps new and different and you're sort of cultivating a relationship that can that can change and um you're allowing people to say oh i don't like this or i do like that um this is how i'm hearing it but i want you to say more yeah that exactly and some sometimes what that means is being really clear about what this ecosystem is and is not. Mm. So, you know, if your ecosystem is a pond, it is not a forest. Right? And so the reason why that's so important is that human beings really crave certainty, even if we don't like the information we're given, we want to know the answer. So if there's, I deal with this all the time with the organizations. If there's something they're not going to do, they're not going to address, they need to say that. I think it drives employees absolutely crazy to just hear over and over again, we're going to look at pay or we're, yes, you know, it's on the agenda this year to look at our time off policy, but if you're not really going to, you need to say to people, that is not on the agenda for this year. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. other priorities we're going to have to focus on. I know that's disappointing to hear. I know it's a concern, but it is not on the agenda, at least until 2024. That is critically important, again, to put the boundaries on what the ecosystem is and is not. And when people aren't clear, I think it's incredibly hard for us to be flexible. It's like the paradox of the container creates the flexibility because we understand it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it totally makes sense. And then I I, I guess I'm thinking about what you've said previously in in, in our conversation um, last week when we were talking about, um, or you were telling me that, you know, HR professionals should really be thinking about their work as healing work. Mm. And (laughs) I don't know, I guess I'm thinking about what you just said about this sort of, we crave certainty. And then you say, look, we're not going to be talking about this thing that you want to talk about. Um, It's just not going to happen. I'm going to be really honest. And then somebody comes to you and is like, I'm really scared that we're not going to be talking about that thing because I really need that thing in my life. And yeah, I really need to be supported by that thing. And we're, we're going to wait a year before I can like, ah. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm wondering what that healing work then looks like in a context like that. If yeah. that's even a fair question. A hundred percent. And I think sometimes what it looks like is being able to look someone in the eye and say, I know. I know it's so hard. And I realize that what this might mean for you or for some of your colleagues is that this is not the right place for you to be long term. And it's okay for you to be making those choices for yourself. 
I think sometimes it's as simple as that. It's like, let's, let's meet the actual moment. Let's not pretend it's something different. I think in and of itself, that's, that can be very healing. So you're just being with the person. Yeah. You're sort of metaphorically holding their hands, holding space for them, letting them express what's on their mind and then giving them sort of permission to freely act in a way that is going to support their own wellness. Exactly. Yeah. And, and really being super clear on what, where the organization might be letting them down Mm. and letting that, not trying to scramble to pretend that isn't real. There's no organization that's going to meet everybody's needs. There's no institution that's going to meet everybody's needs. There's no context that's going to be right for everybody. And that's super hard. It's super hard to disappoint people. It's super hard to look at something that's really important and valuable and aligned potentially with values. And still, we just can't do anything about it this year or Mm. next year, right? Totally. So I think it's it's really about being with what is. Okay. Um, I love that, being with what is. And I'm thinking about... um, Yeah, I'm thinking about when someone might be thinking, wow, this institution's really not meeting my needs. I think I have to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there sort of a framework that you use for helping people to think through whether an institution is meeting needs or not? Your personal needs, I guess I should say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the one thing I would offer is that as much as possible, you want to think about not just what you want to get away from, but what you want to go towards Mm -hmm. and get really clear about that. So, of course, myself included, when we're burned out, when we're struggling, there's things we're trying to... Be, get away from. We're, we're trying to literally run away from stuff that is breaking us or frustrating us or absolutely making us sick. And at the same time, can we open ourselves up to think about what do I want more of, not just mm-hmm. less of, right? What do, mm. what do I want to be present for me in the future state? I just think generally speaking, that's a healthier place to vision from, to imagine. So for me, I really wanted to solve a different problem. I wanted an opportunity to be solving organizational and cultural problems at a larger level. Like I knew that's what I was going towards and I was trying to move away from solving crises on the ground floor and working in an organizational context where I was not part of any of those discussions or solutions. So I think everyone could do that discernment for themselves, but that would be my biggest kind of quote unquote framework would just be to think about the question, what am I going towards or what do I want more of? 
Okay. Yeah. That's really good. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I don't know, I'm kind of imagining, um, it, it, I'm thinking about something I've heard Stephen Cope talk about. Stephen mm. Cope, the author of like the greatest work of your life. Mm. Um, he, he talks about like creating these arcs and on the, uh, these tension arcs of mm -hmm. like on one end, um, I want this on the other sort of end of this arc. I want that. And then sitting in the tension and being with the tension. And mm. when you're with the tension, it um, creates um, this sort of uh, fertile environment for discernment. Um, I don't know. How does that land mm. for you when, when I describe that? Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's interesting. I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. I think anytime maybe what the, that's the antidote for is the uh the kind of over imagining of a perfect mm. future state right <laughs> um and getting trapped by that because that's also not helpful or useful necessarily and so perhaps we're sitting with those tensions is useful is really to to make sure that we're still grounded in the fundamental realities of being alive and mm. working in the world which is that there's always challenges and there's always us there in the challenge right mm -hmm. i I am just really struck by you saying um, grounded in being alive. Um, th this is just mm -hmm. something I've been thinking a lot about lately because I'm one of those people who can just run toward the vision and run fast and furiously mm -hmm. and forget about like what's in my everyday experience. <laughs> like my yeah. kids then become this sort of distraction, like, oh God, I have to deal with them. But really I'm trying to run that way. Um, or I remember when I was an academic, it was like trying to get this paper written and that's what's most important. And I'm running that way. But I was meeting with students in the classroom every single um, day of the week or most days of the week. And um, those experiences could have been really grounding for me. <laughs> I let yeah. them be grounding for me. But instead, I was trying to get away from them. I was dodging them. I was like annoyed that I had to be there. And all of that. And so when you say grounded in being alive, that's a really important piece of all of this that really lands for me in a, yeah. whoo, in a with a lot of truth right now. Um, yeah. and anything you want to say to that, you don't have to. Yeah, I mean, so I've been in my own spiritual and personal development work over the last couple of years, something that has just served me really, really well is to really learn on a cellular level that there is nothing quote unquote out there. There is not a time when I'm going to arrive at anything. There is not a moment where I'm going to look at everything in my life and say, well, I did it. It's all <laughs> set now. <laughs> like it's not coming it's not coming mm -hmm. and so all I have is the opportunity to 
think about how can I make my life as juicy and fun and alive, to come back to that word, mm-hmm. right now in whatever I'm doing, wherever I am. Some days this comes really easily to me. Other days it's a huge challenge and, you know, it's a constant reminder for myself, but, um, but that, that grounded in aliveness for me is about divorcing ourselves from the idea of ever arriving anywhere. So I guess my question for you, because this is another thing I've been thinking a lot about lately. Do you have a practice or Mm. um, a number of practices, any examples you might give us that bring you back to that knowing when you're having a hard day? Yeah. Yes. I, there's a lot of things that I do. Um, If folks haven't read it, maybe you've talked about it on your podcast before, but the book Burnout, Unlocking the Secrets of the Stress Cycle Mm -hmm. is brilliant. Um, so I do a lot of the things that are in that book that really are super small things. I dance like every day, put on a ridiculous, you know, pink song or whatever, and have a dance party with myself or the kids. Um, I do strength training a couple times a week. That for me is, has fundamentally transformed my relationship with my body where it's really about feeling grounded and effective, if you will, in my body. Um, Not about aesthetics. It's just been awesome. Um, And then every, I try every morning, I will say I, I don't succeed every single day. And again, this is not about being perfect. We're not arriving anywhere. But I try to have a few minutes before the kids get up. Um, between like 30 and 45 minutes, which means I get up pretty early. Um, And I do what my mentor, Sarah Jenks, calls a sacred start, which is about designing the start of your own day to tap into your own inner wisdom. For me, that involves putting on some music, breathing. I pull cards. I have some card decks I like. I read some amount of pages of, uh, you know, either a spiritual book or a self-development book, like burnout, for instance, was one I I read during that. Um, I like candles. Like it's really just like whatever is going to make me feel amazing at Mm -hmm. the start of my day, my day. So those are kind of some of the things that I do. Um, and I think you have to experiment a lot. I don't think it's one thing. Yeah. And I, I, what I'm thinking is, um, (laughs) you could also be super graspy. Like I want out and I want to get to the next thing and all this, like sit down with myself and have a sacred start (sighs) is like just distracting me from the the job applications I need to be filling out or whatever it is. Um, and so I, I am pausing because, um, I'm pausing on this because I want people, because I see this way too much. I want people to really understand that these kinds of practices and um, 
living, being in the moment, knowing, as you say, Corona, the time will never arrive when everything's just right. Just letting people who feel like they're really grasping for the right path, really grasping for the, for, for the next step, for the next thing mm. to slow down, pause, breathe through it, calm your nervous system, dance, mm-hmm. do all the stuff. Um, I just feel like it's really important to pause and let people notice if they are in that state. Yeah. And and I want to say two things about that. One is 100% agree with you. And and what I had to come to understand was that time management is a bunch of BS. Energy management is everything. So if I am depleted, exhausted, frustrated, it's going to take me like three hours to get something done, right? If I'm energized, creative, feeling like, you know, all the ideas are flowing, it takes me like 40 minutes to do the same thing, right? Absolutely. Like that's energy management. What, What energy we're bringing to what we're doing really actually determines the time not the other way around. So I had to get my head around that in a big way. It wasn't about ignoring the to-dos. It was about like, if in order to do the to-dos, I got to bring a version of myself that can get them done without killing me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's that. And then, you know, the, the other thing I'll say is that what the sitting down and breathing or dancing or hiring somebody to clean your house or like whatever you do that helps you manage your energy differently. The actual revolution of that is the arc that you have to go through to get over the resistance that it doesn't matter. Right? So like, the actual doing my sacred start in the morning or dancing in the evening, those things make a big difference to me. But the revolution in my life, the initiation in my life was the process I had to go through to decide that those were going to be important to me. Does that make sense? That was a whole arc of personal development work. Yep. Yep. I, I mean, you are speaking my language so much. Like I, I really believe that every sort of conversation I have is like meant to be here in my life right now. Mm. And everything we're talking about is just this like confirmation that what I'm thinking about where I'm going at this point in my life is, um, exactly where I need to be. And like, here you are showing up in my life, having this conversation with me and just sort of confirming that, huh, I am, I don't know. I am exactly where I need to be. Um, (laughs) I don't know. How does that land? Yes, you are. (laughs) Yes, you are. And so am I. And so are your listeners. Mm. No. And sometimes the best question to ask yourself is like, if you're, you know, some of your listeners are really struggling right now and I've been there and you've been there. It's like sometimes the best thing I can do for myself in those moments is just to really sit with the question, like, what is this challenge here to teach me? Exactly. I believe that things 
show up over and over and over again in our lives until we get the lesson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like lessons I'm still like, how have I not learned the lesson to like ask <laughs> for help? Sometimes like that one is just going to show up in my life until it is drilled into my head. So if, if you're out there and you are hearing this and you are in a moment of deep struggle, you know, I wonder what is available for you to learn from it. Amen. Yes, yes, yes. A million times. Yes. Um, I had an experience, um, not too long ago where I'm sitting there in a group, um, and every time this group, this group that's, that's very connected and very loving. And every time this group, um, somebody in the group would, um, mention something about feeling a connection or feeling mm. a little love, um, I was noticing in myself this sort of like aversion, like, ugh. <laughs> and I didn't notice, I mean, I, I was practicing feeling right um, into all of my experiences and being mindful. And I just watched myself sort of experience these moments of aversion. And I didn't, and I didn't realize what it was until, um, the like third time it happened in this situation. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I am resisting the connection. I am resisting wow. the connection. And I'm telling you that lesson has come up in my life so many times over <laughs> and over and over again. Um, but it's these tiny, 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 tiny little moments that can teach you so much if you let them. Um, oh my yeah. gosh. Oh my I'm just God. echoing what you're saying. <laughs> yes, yes. No, it's true. And and I will say, like, even if it's even if it's a just a thought experiment, it's a lot more fun to live life <laughs> from the perspective of looking at everything as a lesson than it is to to feel like this is all just heavy baggage that we have to carry. <sighs> Right, right. No, totally. That for me, that lands is like, I am, life is like a gift. These moments are gifts as opposed to, uh, here we yeah, go. I just got to get through it. Right. And in spiritual circles, sometimes they call it like life is a mystery school. Yeah. And it's like, what's the, what's the lesson in the mystery school of your life that's available mm. to you right now? And, and, Sometimes that just helps you take these. And I will also say there's there's some science behind it, right? The ways that we make meaning of the things that happen to us are tremendously important to mm. alchemizing, processing, transmuting, if you will, trauma mm -hmm. and having what they now call post-traumatic growth mm -hmm. and very research Based right now and it all hinges on this ability that we have as human beings to make meaning of the circumstances in our lives oh my god okay i am like <laughs> looking at the time and yeah. sort of like man we could talk for a lot longer than oh my we god. have to <laughs> um okay so let me um let me ask you 
you okay this is a question you brought up to me um last time you said um that this is a question you like to ask people yeah. and that is if your job um no no what would your job look like if personal well-being was priority and my first thought is does that trigger a lot of fear in people when you ask that question <laughs> yes. so the question's a little bit different this is this is the question okay yeah. How would it change the way you approach your work if you understood that your first job was to be the healthiest person in the room? Mm, amen. I love it. And so the I will say that usually I get a lot of O-S-H-I-T. <laughs> like, like, oh my God, that hit me to my core. Because I do think that on many levels, most people in any position of leadership or any position of authority who have any ounce of self-awareness know un unconsciously or subconsciously that that is actually their first job, right? So if you are the college professor and you are not the, and you're at the front of the classroom leading students, your first job is to be healthier than them, right? If you're leading a group of faculty or the administration at a college or any organization, you can't make the best decisions that everyone is looking at you to make if you are not the healthiest person in that room. And I ask the, this question of HR pro professionals a lot because I also think it's our job that when people come to us in crisis and if we are not healthier than them, and, and I don't mean that in a, you know, in a sort of judgmental way, I just mean if we are not attending to ourselves 10 times to the extent that we would expect them to be then how can we be credible? How can we be doing what's asked of us? So good. <laughs> I'm so glad you restated the question in the way that it actually <laughs> was articulated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, it, it's taken me a while to formulate the question in the, in the way that I intended, because it's really sort of more than anything like about an energy. People can sense from you right away if they sit across from you particularly if you're in a position of authority and as human beings we're very tuned in to how the people in authority in our lives are doing and when you're sitting with someone who's in a position of authority who is burnt out exhausted frustrated mad i think 90 95% of people pick up on it right away without mm -hmm. them having to say much of anything. And you lose credibility when it's obvious to that person that your authority or your, um, your expertise is coming for the ride with your depletion, exhaustion, burnout, and frustration. Oh, 
gosh, the words are just hanging on me. Like, um, <laughs> wow, that was really powerful. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think it's just meant as a rhetorical question, right? I don't actually ask people to really answer it for me very much of the time. Uh, often I just bring it to a conversation to say, like, think about this, right? Yeah. Here's something to ponder. What would change for you if you understood that that was your first job was to be the healthiest person in the room? And then we all have to answer that for ourselves. So, you know, for us, it's about some of, for me, it's the, some of those practices. And I know you have spiritual practices and meditation practices. And for somebody else, it's going to be, you know, hiking or particular hobbies or fixing certain relationships or, you know, there's so many ways to be in that game. I don't believe I have to answer that question for anyone. You know, we're all resourceful and creative and whole, but the idea is like, get in the game of your well-being and people will see it. Get in the game of your well-being. I love it. Um, Okay. Corona, because we're basically out of time, I want you Well, one, I'm going to ask you how people can reach you in a second, but I would like to ask you if there's anything you want to make sure you say um, to sort of complete our conversation. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I would just say um, if you are someone who's listening, who's in burnout, I just want to say that I see you Mm. and your life can be really beautiful And it can take a lot less time than you think to get there. So that's all. Um, And folks can reach me in a few different ways. Um, I have a company dedicated to doing well-being and holistic development work with HR professionals. This is a newly launched project called Resourced HR. There's also coronapritchard.com. I'm on Instagram as Corona Pritchard, LinkedIn, um, also Corona Pritchard. So come find me. I would love to hear from anyone who wants to chat. Awesome. Corona, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much oh my for gosh. this conversation. Have so feeling. much fun. I could talk for three more yeah. hours. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. This normally would be the time... I tell you where you can follow me on social media, but I'm mostly quitting social media. It's the self-compassionate thing to do. I'm still on LinkedIn, but uh, I rarely post. So don't follow me. Send me a connection request and send me a message. And as always, you can schedule a 20-minute consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. And... I'm sending a wish that you too will do the self-compassionate thing, whatever that is for you. Take care.